0: As we give thanks to God for all generations who praise God, we also get to turn our attention now to God's word, looking to Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. As said earlier, this is the conclusion of the Reach Out sermon series, of the campaign series that brought us up to this point, this Commitment Sunday. Over the last month, we talked about stewardship in terms of talent and time and treasure. We've talked about faith, that the very substance of our faith is God's faithfulness, which calls us to look back upon the ways in which God has been faithful to help us to look forward with the assurance of God's continued faithfulness. We've talked about sacrifice, and that sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. And now today, all of the heavy lifting, in essence, has been done, and we simply rest in commitment, commitment to the Lord and led by God's word. In just a moment, I'll read the text from Proverbs 16, 1 through 9, but something I want to note before we hear the text is, if you're using your pew Bibles, that's great, uh, finding your way to Proverbs, which comes right after Psalms, which is about in the middle, Um, We're used to some difference because I have a 2011 NIV as opposed to the Pew Bibles or copyright 1984. So gender-inclusive language is one thing. When we're talking about people, it says people instead of just men. But sometimes the words change a little bit because although God's word does not change, language and culture changes over time. And if you don't agree with me on that, if you look back over Shakespeare or Beowulf, you'll see that English used to sound very different. And I would say that some, but probably not all of you, have used these words in the last week, gallivant, britches, snout fair, floppy disk, croppulus. Words change, the words that we use change. And so particularly when we get to verse 3 of Proverbs 6 through 1 through 9, 16, 1 through 9, pay close attention uh, to what is said and to what is read, and we'll address those changes as we move forward. But before we come to God's word together to be centered in his presence, to hear a word from the Lord, let's pray. God, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, our utmost concern. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 16, 1 through 9. To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All of a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. When the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. Better a little with righteousness. Than much gain with injustice. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we talk about Commitment Sunday today, there is a group of people that I want us to think about for just a moment. A group of incredibly committed people. People who have been committed, this group goes back beyond any of our lifetimes. They are committed, they are established, they are steadfast and devoted. Regardless of outcome, whether they see victory or loss, they are a committed group. And this group, of course, are the fans of the Chicago Cubs. Now think just for a moment. This past week, notwithstanding, the Cubs have a massive following. I had to ask someone who won the World Series last year. I don't remember. I didn't remember. Apparently it was Kansas City, I think. I don't remember the years before that either. But what I do know is that the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. And the celebration was huge. Not just from the sheer number of Cubs fans, But because there are Cubs fans everywhere, and because they are an incredibly dedicated group of people. And you have to wonder why, because, I'm sorry for saying this, they're not that good. (laughs) They have not won a World Series in over a hundred years, and yet they have a steadfast, committed fan base. Growing up in Northwest Indiana, I thought there was just Cubs fans around me because we were close to Chicago, which is true. Most teams are regionally based in their loyalties. My mom is a Cubs fan. She got a little Cubs onesie for Ada. Of course, then my mother-in-law gave, I I think, a twins onesie, and so there's a little bit of competition. But the Cubs have this loyal fan base, and you can find Cubs fans anywhere. You can go to Iowa, and you'll find Cubs fans I visited my sister in California when she was in college. I would stay with some of her friends in the dorm, and I found Cubs fans. It astounded me that there were Cubs fans everywhere, dedicated and committed and loyal, and there was not a possibility that any of these people were fair-weather fans because the Cubs just don't win. To think of how steadfast the fan base, so established the fan base is, consider for a moment that many, many, many diehard fans have lived their entire lives and died without seeing the Cubs win a World Series. Think about that. Being a lifelong fan and never seeing your team win the Series. Now, I know some of the Lions fans are looking for some sympathy, too, but that's a different sport, and we'll get there later. But giving credit to the Cubs fans, they are committed and loyal. They commit themselves to their team, even if there's not a chance, a snowball's chance in July, that they will actually see a World Series victory. I'm not that committed of a person. My mom took me to a Cubs game when I was a kid. National Honor Society got to go to a White Sox game. But I wasn't really that committed. What I did notice that was that if the White Sox are doing well, the stadium's full, but if they're not doing well, it's empty. But the Cubs, Wrigley Field, that icon of a ballpark, is almost always full, even if the Cubs are just doing downright lousy, which is a little bit easier to say right now because they're celebrating their great victory. But because of their commitment, the victory is that much sweeter. Now, I'll level with you. I don't play baseball, well... Some of you I played with on the softball team, you know that was my first chance ever playing any kind of ball, and Eric, you're smiling, you've never seen a catcher in slow pitch lose so many behind them. (laughs) But I don't follow baseball, and I've never been that committed or established to a group. I was kind of fair-weather Cubs or Sox growing up. Then I went to Iowa, met Caitlin, and decided, well, there's this, this woman I'm attracted to, And she's a Twins fan? Her immediate family are Twins fans? Her extended family are Twins fans? Sure, I'll be a Twins fan. But there's no establishment or committed loyalty that I have to the team. Which means I don't take the losses that hard, but it also means that the victories are not that sweet. Because I have not stuck with the Twins or the Cubs or any other team through thick and thin, win or loss. And I can't imagine being a Cubs fan for your whole life. It's easier now. The Cubs just might be a secular parable for us, though. How committed are we? We like to commit to things that we already know are winning or will succeed, and we want to see evidence of it. Maybe sometimes what's hard to be committed about being a Christian is that there's so much evil in the world that we're not sure who's winning. Now, we know in our heads that Christ has the final victory, and we will remind ourselves of that at the communion table, in remembrance, communion, and the hope that God has, the plan that the Lord has for all the earth. But sometimes, when we don't see enough victories, it gets hard to stay committed. Sometimes we take our commitment to church with a kind of fair-weather fan type of stance. Well, we would be committed, but, you know, this church thing, it's just not bringing me many wins in life. It's not bringing me the victories and results that I was hoping for. And so we get a little bit fair weather about it because we don't see the successes that we're looking for. And so unlike the Cubs, the established fan base that we could be drifts away because we don't see the results that we want. Consider our text this morning from Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. And I want to pay special attention to verse 3, because verse 3, in many ways, is the center point and thesis of this chapter, of this section of Proverbs. Now, there's two different common translations that we have even here among us in our own Bibles. The 1984 copyright of the NIV Was commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Now, theologically, that works just fine if you're very careful about how you understand that word, succeed. But the problem is that we take words like that in our culture and apply it as this blanket statement that no matter what we do, as long as we commit it to the Lord, it will succeed. Which means, I'm going to go out and buy a lottery ticket, but I'll commit that lottery ticket to the Lord, and then it will succeed, right? Except it doesn't work that way. Because committing to the Lord whatever you do means that you're giving God all that you have, but you're inviting God to change who you are as well. And so it's not just cheap words of saying, well, this is for the Lord, and hope that it will succeed for you. Because it's not about your success, That's why when translators get together every few decades to revise and review a translation of Scripture from Hebrew and Greek into whatever language we all speak, in this case the NIV being in English, one of the biggest changes in Proverbs 16 was going from commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed to this. Commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. He will establish your plans. This is to invite a different perspective. Now, to the Israelites who read the Proverbs after Solomon compiled all of these great works of wisdom, for them to say that God will succeed, you will, your plans will succeed if they're established in the Lord works just fine. But for us, we need to reframe this a bit. And the word establish... It's talking about building, upon setting, upon making something sure and steadfast. But we tend to evaluate what is sure and steadfast in a very different way than the Israelites would. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. This means to give everything that we have, all that we are, to the Lord. And in that submission to God's will, God will establish what needs to be planted and sure and steadfast and flourishing. And when we commit to the Lord all that we have, those things that God was not asking for, that that God does not have in mind for us to happen, they'll fade away. Translations are necessary to address language and how it shapes culture. Because in North America, we have a very narrow definition of success. Hence, it can be dangerous to say, commit to the Lord, whatever you do in your plans will succeed. There can be arrogance in that to say, well, as long as I commit it to the Lord, my plan will work out. And that's the problem. It's still focused on our plan and not what God would establish within us. Our definition of success is very narrow. We like win and lose. We like results. We like numbers. And it's not just if you win or lose, but in our culture, we label people winners and losers. It's not just did you win or lose, but winner or a loser becomes an insult. Results and numbers drive what we think of as success. That's not necessarily how God views success for us. And so I'd like to offer a counter-definition one that I think taps into the heart of Proverbs and really the entire arc of Scripture based on Proverbs three, sixteen, three. The greatest success is to be established in God's will. The greatest success is to be established in God's will. That is true for us as individuals, as a congregation, as a church, and as a nation. If the greatest success for us as an individual is to be established in God's will, then we might lose according to the world's standards. And are we willing to accept that? If we commit all that we do to the Lord, that he will establish his plans for us, we might lose according to the ways of the world. But we reframe what we mean by success when we believe that the greatest success is to be established In God's will for God to plant us in his will to make it abundantly clear and to give us the perseverance when we keep going on that same path even when we're not seeing the results that we want as an individual also as a congregation in the midst of a capital campaign it can be a scary thing because there are many of us that are hoping and praying for a particular result. But what we as North Holland need more than anything else is to know that we commit to the Lord whatever we do and God will establish his plan within and among us. And when that happens, we achieve the greatest success because we are established in God's will. Not our will, but God's will for us. As individuals, as a congregation, as a church worldwide. And as a nation as well. Can you feel the anticipation and the anxiety and really the hatred and malice as we're two days away from an election? It is all about win, lose, results, numbers. What does it mean to be established in God's will regardless of who is the next president of the U.S.? And there can be arrogance in thinking that we're the only nation on the world. This election's important, certainly. But what does your commitment to God's will look like regardless of who the next president is? Is it a fervency in prayer? Is it a devotion for loving God and loving neighbor? Are we putting too much energy in one area saying, well, this will determine things for us? Does it change how you will live your life as a Christian? Or are we so established in God's will, so committed, regardless of the results that we get to see, that we are set on this path of God's will. Because the greatest success is to be established in God's will, regardless of what results we see, regardless of what the world tells us about if we're winners or losers, regardless of results and numbers. We are to be people who are established in God's will, fulfilling the law of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That we are committed to do that no matter What? And to be established in God's will is to recognize that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We are not. Which means which plans work and which plans don't work are not ultimately up to us. We don't get to dictate which plans work. We don't get to tell God which plans to work. All that we do is in our utmost faithfulness, is commit to the Lord. Commit our time and our talent and our treasure. Commit our gifts. Dig deep into our faith. Sacrificing, committing to the Lord, knowing that God is sovereign and that God has the final say. We don't get to choose the future, but we can commit to the Lord in whatever we do, in whatever we say, in whatever we think. It requires commitment. Consider this thesis of recognizing commitment to the Lord and God's sovereignty and that the greatest success that we can have is to be established in God's will, no matter what results we see or no matter what's happening around us. The very first verse of Proverbs 16 tells us, "...to humans belong the plans of the heart." but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue, meaning God gets the last word. We might have a plan in our heart, but it doesn't mean that we get the final say. All of a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. We always think we're right in our own eyes, but God is judging our motives. He's weighing them. Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. Verse 9 of Proverbs 16 closes essentially this section of the chapter in saying that in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. It is the same word in verse 3 and verse 9 that when we commit to the Lord... We may have our plans, we may have our motives, we may have our intentions and our hopes and our dreams, but ultimately we recognize that God is sovereign and that when we commit to the Lord, the Lord alone will establish the plan that is set out before us. The Lord will establish the steps that we take. This requires a great deal of prayer. It requires commitment. And that's hard to do because we are a commitment-aversive society. For as much as we crave success, we don't like commitment. And I think some of it is because we don't want to be like the Cubs fans. We don't want to commit to something that might fail or might succeed by our standards. So we reserve ourselves from commitment. And full disclosure, I am no better than anyone else here. I am preaching to myself in this moment. I don't sign up for things even if I know I'm going to them. In a little bit, we'll have sign-up sheets for the harvest feast. But we don't commit until the last minute. Why is that? Some of our commitment aversion is a little bit innocuous. But what about cohabitation? We don't want to commit to things. We'd rather just ease in and see if it works, and then decide later if we can remove ourselves from the equation. There's plenty of examples we can point to on the ways in which we don't like making commitments because we need to know if it'll win or not. But what if our commitment is simply to commit all that we have and all that we do to God? And in that commitment, there is submission and humility to let God establish what will be next that the greatest success is being established in god's will commitment cards have been filled out and maybe there's some anxiety in wondering am i committing to something that will succeed or not but our prayer is always that we will be established in god's will come what may we commit our ways to the lord we're allowed to have our plans God knows that we have our motives and we even get to think about what we'll do next. But ultimately, when we commit to the Lord, we are deferring to God's sovereignty and saying that we know that God has the last word. Commitment can be hard, especially if it takes great faith to commit. But we commit nonetheless. What is it in your own life that you may sense God is calling you to, but you're just not sure if you can commit to it? Maybe you need more information. Maybe you need to observe from a distance for a little while before you commit. Is there any faith involved in that? Or is there a time to simply say, God, this is what I'm giving to you, committing with our hearts, with our minds, with our actions, and leaving it in the Lord's hands? Our greatest example of commitment is not a human example but of Jesus coming into the world taking on our flesh and blood and dying upon the cross for us. Christ committed to us fully in such a way beyond even though God has full omniscience we we are told that Christ emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2. Are we so committed that we empty ourselves all of our hopes and dreams and desires and simply want to give them all to God? Or are we just holding on? Are we just waiting a little bit? Or are we really committing to what our plan is and not discerning and praying and committing to what we believe God's plan is? I give credit to the Cubs fans that they get to celebrate a great victory after years and years of not seeing victory. And I do know from seeing reactions, from seeing tears, from seeing people hug their dogs and kiss their babies at the time of the Cubs winning, that the victory is sweet for those who committed even when they went years without seeing the results they hoped for. May our commitment be so full and so fruitful that we commit to the Lord whatever we do, and that we remind ourselves first and foremost of Christ's commitment to us, using it as our model and guide for what true commitment looks like. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Supper which we are about to celebrate is a feast of remembrance, communion, and hope. And consider these in terms of commitment. Christ committed himself to us, to the whole world, to every generation of people, committing his very flesh and blood to die for us upon the cross. And by his death, resurrection, and ascension, we remember that in Christ's commitment to us, a commitment of love, he established a new and eternal covenant of grace and reconciliation, that we might be accepted of God and never be forsaken by him. Christ was committed to communion, with us, Christ has promised to be with us always. Come what may, the circumstances of our life make no difference on Christ's commitment to us to be with us now and even to the end of the age. And so we trust in remembrance that Christ was committed to us and that Christ is committed to commune with us and that in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup, Christ reveals him to sin- It reveals himself to us as the true heavenly bread that strengthens us unto eternal life. And in the committing of the cup, as the true vine in whom we must abide if we are to bear fruit. If we are to bear fruit, we must be committed to the true vine, who is Jesus Christ. And we come in commitment of hope. Hope is knowing that God has the final say, that God is, in fact, sovereign. Even when the results don't seem to be what we want them to be, we come in hope nonetheless, believing that this bread and this cup are a pledge and foretaste, a promise of the future, that we shall partake of when Christ's kingdom has fully come, and when with unveiled face we shall behold him, made like unto him in his glory since by his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ has obtained for us the life-giving spirit who unites us all in one body, so we are to receive this supper in true love, in true commitment to God's will, mindful of the communion of the saints.
1: Let's pray together. Holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places, O Lord, our Creator, almighty and everlasting God. You created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your Son, Jesus Christ, The eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God. With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again send your holy spirit on us we pray that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and blood of christ grant that being joined together in him we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into christ our lord and as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup Grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.
0: The Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night that he was betrayed, took bread. And as was his custom, he took it and gave thanks and broke it and said unto his disciples this is my body broken for you as often as you eat of it remember me
1: and in the same way after they had eaten he took the cup he gave thanks for it and he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood as often as you do this
0: remember me